And I remember when she went up to the podium, I thought, you know, something went through my head that this was no doubt a miracle. And she stood up there and she said, and this, she was an attorney. The, the woman could talk. She was an unbelievable speaker. The only words that she could get out of her mouth were that she had given up her right to a better past. I just started bawling. You know, I had a feeling of happiness and gratitude for her that I had never in my life at that time. I was about 29 years old. I had never experienced before. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Yes, you are listening to another episode of Sober Speak. And that was the voice of Mr. David G that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you will be hearing so much more from him actually over the next couple of weeks in just a moment. But... First things first, this episode is coming at ya, is being brought to ya by Todd and Terry and Kurt and Catherine and Raymond. Do you know what Todd and Terry and Kurt and Catherine and Raymond did? Well, let me tell you, they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Todd and Terry and Kurt and Catherine and Raymond. This episode is coming right out to Ewan's. And when I say Ewan's, well, I'll, I'll tell you in just a second. Uh, this uh, is uh, I, John M. I'm sorry, I, I was uh, thinking about several things at once there. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a read, take a seat, around this virtual table, and let's get started. As we always say, this is Sober Speak, a meeting between meetings at your fingertips. All right, when I said Ewan's a second ago, that is a tip of the hat to my father. He uh, was brought up in Tennessee, and uh, when he says y'all or you guys or anything like that, he says Ewan's. And I just absolutely love that. As he says, he is a self-proclaimed hillbilly. And I want to talk to you a little bit about my dad a moment, because I got a call a couple of weeks ago now, 
It was from my stepmother, and she was in hysterics. Uh, and she was very, dis- uh, well, let me just say she was distraught. She had taken my dad to the doctor that morning because he wasn't feeling well at all. He was running a bit of a fever. Uh, he was having just all sorts of issues, right? And so she took him there, and she had to wait in the car while they took him in and did some testing on him. And when the doctor came out, the doctor was in a hazmat suit. Never a good sign when the doctor comes out to your car after visiting with your husband, and she is in a hazmat suit. Well, turns out they were very suspicious that my dad had contracted coronavirus, COVID-19, which I'm sure everybody knows what that is. And they came out to her car and they told her just to go home and stay there, look for symptoms herself, and they would call her in a couple of days because it was going to take them a little bit of time to get the tests back. In the meantime, they put my dad in an ambulance, they took him to the hospital, and uh, that was on a Wednesday. So on a Thursday and Friday, I was in real close contact with him, talking to him on the phone on a consistent basis. And I could tell his breathing was not normal, um, but it wasn't super bad. And then on Saturday, he called me that morning, and it turned out they got the test back, and he was indeed COVID positive. Now, my dad um, is not in the best of shape. I'll just put it this way. He's very overweight. Uh, the second piece to this is, is that he has kidney three, excuse me, stage three kidney disease. He also has diabetes. He has high blood pressure and he had just about everything that you would not want to have going into a COVID-19 stayover at the hospital. Saturday and Sunday, his breathing got progressively worse and it was so uh, I, w- I was so able to tell that just by listening to him on the phone. And quite honestly, we, all of us around him, his family included me, all of us, we were kind of making plans for the end for my dad. And I was thinking about when I was going to have to go up there and everything else going on. And uh, it was just a tough few days without a doubt. I didn't have much sleep. I was talking to him on a consistent basis, trying to get updates from the doctor, trying to see what was going on. And then on Monday, all of a sudden I called him and uh, I said, how you doing? And he says, you know, a lot better. And his breathing was taking a turn for the better. And I just couldn't believe it. And then on Tuesday, it was even better. And then on Wednesday, they let him out of the hospital. Turns out my stepmother had also contracted COVID from my dad. and uh, But she wasn't showing very... And by the way, she's diabetic as well. And uh, But her symptoms were just fine. I mean, they she felt, as she calls it, puny. Uh, she felt... Um, Uh, like she wasn't doing well. Um, But everything worked out the way it was supposed to work out. And and I I bring all this up to say, 
that first of all, I know I'm not the only one out there who is experiencing this. I realize that. I have uh, gotten letters from, from those of you who their father actually contracted COVID and they ended up not coming out of the hospital. And it's really a bit of a roll of the dice. But I bring all that up to say this, is that during that time, I had a feeling of... There was an uncomfortability, and I wasn't sleeping well at night, but inside that I knew that I'd made all my amends with my father, that I had uh, told him I loved him uh, so many times over. I had um, developed a relationship over my time in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that I knew if he went, I was going to feel grief, but I wasn't going to be feeling like I should have done something. Uh, while I was here on this earth. And it, it just enabled me to process all those sorts of things in my head. And it looks like he dodged another bullet. Uh, he's in his mid-80s. Uh, how he did that, I have no idea, but I'm thankful that he's got some more time left here on this earth. And the program uh, has helped me to deal with things like this when they do come about in my life. All right, everybody. Now, on to Mr. David G, part one. And this is David G, part one. And when I say David G, part one, is David G, part one of the Sober Speak Live event that we had. Yeah, we had a big shindig, a Sober Speak Live event. And this is the first part of it. I'm going to release the next part next week. Uh, it's going to be part two of Sober Speak Live with David G. And on part two, you're going to get, you're going to be able to hear him taking questions and answers from the audience that was present during the Sober Speak Live event that we had via Zoom. So on this part, David's going to talk about his background. He's going to talk about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's going to talk about the subject of surrender and also the subject of grief. David will address the different and many ways that you can experience Alcoholics Anonymous and much, much more. So buckle up, enjoy the ride, and we will have some listener feedback on the end of this episode. Okay. Hi, everybody. My name is Jim. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety dates May 2nd, 1988. For that, I am truly grateful. I, um, I've got to introduce, I'm going to play two songs tonight. And the first song I'm going to play, I, I, I sort of, ever since I got sober, I have had a way of liking to try to tell my story through music. And I have a bunch of songs that I play that sort of go through the process of telling the whole story. When I come in a situation like this and only play a couple songs, I'm going to play, I'm going to start off playing this one song that you, it's got to be a little context. I wouldn't normally do this because this is the first song I ever wrote when I was a kid, when I was 17 years old. And it's sort of describing what, what it was like. And, and again, only playing that one song in context for the opening of a meeting like this might need a little exp explaining. But um, so I need to say that first. And the reason I'm playing it is I was doing it for sound check here a little bit ago. And David and John, the first couple of chords, they started nodding and grinning. And I thought, 
Well, maybe I just need to go ahead and play that song anyway. So I'm going to take out my earbuds here in a second. You give me a thumbs up or down if there's any problem with the audio once I start this. But this first song I wrote when I was 17 years old. I had already been in rehab once, and I had gotten kicked out for smuggling dope into the place, and I wasn't ready. But that I got, I heard the message when I was 17, and I wrote this song a couple months later. It's called Window Pane Night. Did everybody hear that? We can hear that. Well, last night my brother said I flew to the moon. I said, baby, if that's true, you know I came down my shoes so well. Last night I laid awake, I was trying to maintain. Did I know this feeling was a pleasure or pain? And we were lying in the dark, wondering where it's gonna end. I said, Mama, don't you leave me, cause here I go again. And we were off, flying through the clouds that we were off. Thoughts are screaming loud, and it looks like another one of them. gonna end. I said, Mama, don't you leave me, cause here I go again. And we were off, flying through the clouds that we were off. Thoughts are screaming loud, it really looks like another one of Gonna end. I said, Mama, don't you leave me, cause here I go again and we were off. Flying through the clouds that we were off. Thoughts are screaming loud, but it looks like another one of the just say this is this song i wrote a few years later a little later in the process this song is about transformation it's called butterfly I'm 
smiling ocean wide, oh butterfly, fly away through the sky. Butterfly inside, don't I? Ride the winds until you find your happiness, which lies on your way. The more you prolong, well, the more it goes on, and one day you'll find your alone. Okay, so what we're going to do tonight is we are going to start it out by Dave with David G kind of sharing uh, bits and pieces of his story. We're going to cover cover a, a few topics. We never know exactly where these things are going to go. And then after that, we are going to open it up for a question and answer session, which means about 30, 40 minutes or so into the uh, episode, we're going to have uh, Shannon and Cassandra, they're going to open up the chat room. And they are going to invite you all to uh, put some questions in there. And then we will ask those of David. And uh, we will let him respond to those. So we'll make this real uh, uh, interactive. And then we'll close it out, out after that. So Mr. David G, welcome to Sober Speak Live, my friend. Hey, John, good to be here. 
So why don't you go ahead, first of all, for the audience, go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you wish, and then tell them where you are uh, coming to us from tonight. All right. So I'm David. I'm an alcoholic, pretty much uh, addicted to anything that changes the way I feel. And I've been sober since September 15th of 1993. Um, I am here, if you look behind me, at beautiful Caddo Lake in Far East Texas. We're kind of in the bayou of northern Louisiana. And uh, we've been spending a lot of time here during the COVID seclusion so good to see you. Um, all right. So let's go ahead. You know, I always wonder with these live sessions exactly what to do, but let's go ahead and get a bit of a qualification. I think that's what they call it in now for you. So uh, to give them a brief history of what got you up into Alcoholics Anonymous, what kind of person you were before you came here and uh, what drove you to AA? I'll put it that way. Well, it's funny. As Jim sang a song about windowpane. And uh, so I was a blackout drug addict. Um, I drank until I blacked out and then I would take drugs and come out of the blackouts and uh, in very interesting states. And the day before my first AA meeting in a blackout, I uh, dropped acid. Uh, for the few of you who did not know what window pain is, that's gel acid. And uh, I came out of a blackout in my mom, the Methodist minister's spare bedroom, and I was on the waterbed. Uh, completely confused about where I was, why I felt the way I felt. And um, it was a bad scene. <laughs> I uh, laid there on that waterbed, staring into that mirror on the headboard, you know, those old 70s waterbeds with the smoke mirrors and the big oak things with like the gold lame uh, encrusted uh, cabinets on the ends. Anyway, and uh, just freaking out. And uh, my mom woke me up for breakfast. I could not put scrambled eggs into my mouth. I tried with all my might and uh, told my mom that I thought I was on, on LSD. I didn't say it exactly like that, but I'll spare the words that I used. And, and they immediately thought that I belonged in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's where I went, you know. It was a very humble beginning. I was, I was probably the most disappointed when... You know, I tried to dodge AA because the word alcohol's in it. And uh, so I went to NA and like the first thing they read was that alcohol was a drug. And basically I had to quit that too. And the idea at 19 years old, that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, have fun with my friends. I mean, what do you do at 19 years old for fun if you're not allowed to drink anymore? And uh, so I was very, very dispirited at having to go to AA, to NA, to any of the A's. I tried them all. Um, wanting to find some loophole that I could find a way to party with my friends, you know, and uh, did not find that loophole, but I continued to party with my friends for about seven more years until the word party did not apply to what was going on in my life anymore. Not even <laughs> the word party did not apply. Did not what apply. do you mean by that? The party was over. You know, it's weird. You know, you think that that people improve, you know, in the big book, it talks about like a third get better if they go for, you know, if they go, if you continue to go, but they say, if you continue to try, not if you continue to show up. And I didn't try AA. What I did is I showed up because I was in trouble all the time. And the only people who really wanted me around were people in AA. And so I would go and kind of, you know, date the girls and smoke cigarettes with people and go on retreats to Lake Whitney and socialized in AA, but I never tried AA. And so really, without question, the absolute worst, ugliest years of my life happened 
amongst doing 90 and 90 over and over and over and over and over, you know, and uh, picking up desire chip after desire chip. It was a, it was pretty disgusting. You know, I, I turned into, you know, when you're, when I was 19, I was uh, between my freshman and sophomore year in college and I had, you know, uh, what I consider to be cool friends and a pretty girlfriend. And I, you know, had a car my parents provided for me. And it was really hard when I went to these meetings and it was in kind of a, a part of Dallas that was right next to downtown. So these were pretty rough meetings, you know, uh, there was people there, uh, you know, who were shooting meth and smoking crack and, and all this stuff. And, and I looked at them, you know, here I am about to be a sophomore in college with my girlfriend waiting in the parking lot to pick me up. And I just could not imagine that I belonged with these people. You know, they would tell these stories of just unbelievable mayhem. And like, I'm sure many people in this room tonight watching this and participating, I ended up doing all of those things and more, you know, I, I was creative. I uh, came up with a lot of awful, ugly ways to humiliate myself and, and bring shame into my life. And, um, and all that, all the while, going to meetings all the time. You know, it was very common for me to go to a nude meeting at six o'clock and eight o'clock and then go to the crack house. And uh, that sounds crazy, but that's what I was. I was determined to get sober at the end and completely unable to do it. And it was a scary, awful time. So tell me a little bit about what your feelings are on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, what that has meant to you throughout the years. Oh my God. It's... So in the beginning, it was like a weird kind of cultish place where people smoked cigarettes, dropped the F-bomb and talked about God. It was just totally weird to me what was even happening in AA. You know, it was like almost like detention, you know, because I was really kind of sent to AA. I didn't ever have to go and get a paper signed by the law, but I really had to get like a, a figurative paper signed because people did not want me in their life. And going to AA made it possible for me to get at least a foot in the door of forgiveness from people and grace from people. Because if I was at least trying, the people who really loved me would, you know, at least to some degree welcome me back, you know? And so I was in AA feeling like, like I was just in trouble. Like, how could I possibly be the only person in my completely screwed up family that needs to go to AA? It just, it didn't seem fair. And so I didn't relate to people in AA very well. I would always, I, I treated AA a lot like I treated my social life in high school. I had like co-perpetrators in high school. I called them friends. But really what we were is people who like, took advantage of other people and did drugs and, and, and uh, broke the law and stole and did all this stuff. I didn't do all of those things in AA, but I would, I would sidle up to other people like me who were forced to be there, who really kind of stood on the outside and gave the finger to the people who were really trying. And so what I got from AA during that time period was really nothing. I, uh, I guess the only thing I got is that mustard seed that when I was finally ready. Now, here's what happened, which is crazy. So in about, so I got sober September of 93, probably in about early December of 93, I sat down with my sponsor and I did a fifth step. And I had done a couple fifth steps before. They were kind of like autobiographies. You know, there was no structure to them. They certainly weren't out of the big book. Um, but anyway, I sat down with a sponsor and I did a fifth step. Uh, directly from the instructions in the big book. 
and it was it was good. You know, I had already told him all my nasty secrets that I couldn't get out of my mouth. You know, I did that in step one with him because I, I maybe I misunderstood the instructions, but it seemed like that was my life becoming unmanageable, all that dirty, nasty, shameful stuff. When I did my fifth step, we actually did, you know, what the fourth step was about, you know, resentment, fears, and not necessarily sex acts, but sex conduct, you know, what my life was around, uh, uh, you know, hitting on girls and, and always being narcissistic and always needing people to tell me uh, I was okay because I didn't feel okay. And I did that type of inventory and really exposed my feelings of inadequacy to this man, the things I was really embarrassed about. Because I got to tell you, I can't speak for anyone else in AA. I personally was not necessarily embarrassed by what disgusting things I would do using. It was kind of what I had formed a pride about, which is totally off and wrong, but it's, it's what I had become. But what I disclosed to him, I had never talked to anyone about. I had never been able to put a finger on what was wrong with me. Um, I thought that I felt like everyone else, you know, I thought that everyone felt confused and like they didn't know when they were going to grow up. Like, did you turn a certain age and feel like an adult? Did, uh, was I ever going to stop feeling like I didn't fit in, in any social situation without drinks or drugs? Um, and when I told him about that, you know, my feelings of like not being good enough, like being ex constantly being afraid of being exposed by the world around me that there was going to, there was, and there was always one of those people who looked at me and could tell I was full of it, you know, and, and that was the person I focused on. I could have 10 friends in the room and there'd be this one person, be it my girlfriend's friend or some guy who would look at me and just kind of, in my view, mock what a loser I was. And maybe they weren't even doing that, but that's how I felt inside. And when I exposed myself to Clovis, my sponsor about that, you know, the, this amazing thing happened. When I walked into my first AA meeting the next day, I had a completely different view of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. The people around me were there for a completely different reason. The people that were quoting the big book in meetings were quoting the book for a completely different reason. The people who got weepy and started crying when they were grateful, that used to make me feel sick to my stomach, like, please stop that. You're embarrassing yourself and making me feel bad. And all of a sudden, I would start to weep with them. And so I was not able to have that experience until I worked the 12 steps. And though the fellowship really didn't change at all, my insides changed so much that the fellowship completely changed for me and has continued to do that. You know, I hear people in meetings and I, I think I know what they mean. You know, I don't, I don't like everybody, but I love everybody. I got to say that's really become less and less the case for me. I don't have really a feeling of dislike for people in AA. You know, I don't, I, uh, when, when it says in the book, you know, that we're people that normally would mix, first of all, for me, that wasn't true. If you, were, if you had alcohol and drugs, we mixed. It was fine. I didn't care where you were from or what you looked like or what you believed in or what you cared about. It was fine with me as long as we were getting high. But in AA, you guys all became the people that I wanted to mix with. And I found myself easily able to sit down and have conversations with any age, any race, religion, sexual orientation, you know, uh, you know, even people who had, had different political persuasions than me. We were able to sit and talk and maybe argue a little and still be friends and love each other. And that did not happen for me until I worked the 12 steps. I was incapable of having those kind of relationships. We've had a few of those conversations ourselves, haven't we, Mr. Oh, Dan? yes. You, you know, you, you can't be right about everything, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Will you tell me the story again? Um, it just came to me while you were speaking about your grandmother and when she passed. So in 1991, I had my longest stint of dry time in my efforts to be sober. I stayed sober about nine months. And my great, so you kind of have to understand my parents were not bad parents. Um, you know, they did bad things, but not necessarily to me. But what my parents were, were stoned parents in the 70s. So there was not mistreatment. I never went without. I, was, I, was, I wasn't beaten enough, frankly. Um, I got a couple really good spankings that I remember, and I probably should have gotten about 10 times that many. It would have been good for me. But anyway, I basically was raised with stoners in the 70s. And so our house was always dirty. My mom was always kind of in la-la land, would forget to pick me up from school and that kind of thing. And so her mother, my grandmother, who happened to be a recovering alcoholic, uh, which I didn't understand at the time, um, would take care of me. You know, she would come over to the house and she would clean the house from back to, you know, front to back. She would cook for me. She would take me to Luby's. You know, we went to Luby's all the time. And I just loved my grandmother, you know, and I love my mother too. I was a mama's boy and I was a grandmama's boy, you know. Um, they took care of me. And so I loved my grandmother. And I, you know, I don't pretend that I love my grandmother and my mom more than other people love their grandmothers and their moms. But I love my grandmother as much as you could possibly love your grandmother, right? And, um, and so when she passed away, I was about seven months sober. And uh, I was going to meetings all the time. I had not worked the 12 steps. And she had a flower garden in her backyard with roses. And so being the young, whatever guy, they gave me a shovel and, and I dug a hole in the flower garden, in the rose garden. And, um, and I emptied her ashes into that hole and covered it. And when I stood up, you know, my mom and my grandfather and my sister, we stood in a circle and my mom was a choir director and we're a very vocal family. I mean, I'm not going to start singing for you and weird you all out that I've sang my whole life. Uh, not that you weirded me out, Jim, you were awesome, but it'd be weird in this setting, right? Um, and, um, they, and my mom spontaneously, uh, started singing amazing grace and I was standing there holding hands and my sister joined in and my grandfather joined in and it was tearful and, and I didn't sing and it wasn't because I don't know the amazing grace and it's not because I didn't want to sing with my family. It's because I could not understand why I didn't feel anything. I had no feeling whatsoever. I felt dead inside. And I knew that there was something wrong with that because I knew that I loved this woman and that I should at least feel like I missed her or that I, you know, I, I had no grief, you know, I was in, I was broken and I knew at that moment that I was broken and I was seven, eight months sober and still broken. So I'm just going to ask you, you'll probably say no, but I have heard you sing before. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was worth the shot. <laughs> David does have an incredibly beautiful singing voice. In fact, it kind of it caught me off guard. I was like, "Is that my friend, David G?" I just I couldn't even believe it. All right, well, let's let's you. move on to another subject. Then, how about uh, the subject of surrender? When you think about surrender in your life and in Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery. What does surrender mean to you? What comes to mind? Yeah, golly. So it may be what this whole thing is about. You know, it's what I barely survived. Uh, when I think about being grateful for being sober, 
maybe the step before step one, my friend Stephen F is here tonight and, and he's, I've known him since I, the day I got sober and he used to talk about, you know, step zero. And, uh, and I've always thought back on the things that I went through, the places I went, you know, the crack houses and the, the projects behind the French Quarter in New Orleans, you know, at four in the morning trying to score and, and, and the crazy gun stuck in my eyeball that left a circular bruise on my eyelid. Um, I, I wanted to let you know, do not threaten your crack dealer. It's not a good idea. Um, <laughs> And I think about just, you know, those are just a few of the things, not to mention just what drugs can do to your body. I mean, how many of our friends have just died? My little brother at 37 years old, he just expired. You know, he expired in his bed. And, and you know, that didn't happen to me. Um, and I survived the period between when I needed to surrender and when I did surrender, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the Titanic had a lot of deck chairs. And uh, one of the hardest things to face in long-term sobriety is that, you know, when you sober up a horse thief, you don't just get a sober horse thief. Sometimes you get a better horse thief. And, um, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ways that I can damage my, my life, damage people around me, threaten those around me. And some of them are big, you know, and some of them are little minutiae and the minute details of the way I treat other people and treat myself, you know, the way... You know, I may not give myself the right to not be perfect, which is insane, but it's what it looks like if when I look back. And, uh, you know, getting from the, the place of needing surrender and even realizing I needed to surrender and not either my ego or my pride or just not being very smart, not being able to surrender the way I need to surrender. And, um, and I've gone through that certainly that's reflective of my sobriety date, but it's reflective of some big signposts in my recovery. And again, that's small things. That's small things about the way I treat myself and others. And it's big things about some of the other isms that have haunted my life and sobriety. And, um, and I, I just thank God that, you know, I thank God for grace instead of justice. You know, because if, the, if there was justice, you know, I was thinking about this before we went on, and this is maybe stupid, but this is what I was thinking about. I was thinking about that me and John sitting here on a Zoom thing, if it were about justice, we would be doing this only instead of being at Caddo Lake, I would be in a prison and you would be interviewing me over a video thing from a jail cell because it's probably where I belonged. Um, but because of my ability to surrender before that happened, I'm here with you guys. And that surrender has led to all of these things. All I look in this Zoom meeting and there's all these pictures of all these people. I know probably half of you. And every one of you, when I look at these pictures, I think about what a blessing it is that we've all surrendered together. You know? What about the subject of, I, I know you have experienced this. Uh, I know I've experienced this. Everybody actually probably listening to this is some, to some degree has. The subject of grief, uh, we talked about this. Brenda Jay is actually on here listening tonight, and uh, we had a, a Sober Speak Live uh, in person with her at one point, and one of the subjects we covered was grief, and I just want to get your thoughts and feelings on that subject. Well, you know why I know you. Um, the reason I know all of the people in Frisco is because I couldn't stand to be in Dallas anymore. Um, 
when my mom passed away at 11 years sober, I was able to feel uh, that had been that had been changed. I'll tell you because I think this is an important part of this. So when I was about three years sober, there was a woman named Carolyn T. She went to the Frisco Group. She was a brilliant attorney and 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 was unable to stay sober during the same period of time that I was unable to stay sober. And we went to meetings together. And when I finally got sober, she still came to the, she was at the, the, the Trinity group with me and she would share in meetings and she would share of extreme hardship in her past. Extreme. It doesn't matter. It's not my place to share. And, and, uh, uh, she picked up her year chip when I was about three years sober. And, um, and I remember when she went up to the podium, I thought, you know, something went through my head that this was no doubt a miracle, you know? And, and she stood up there and she said, one, and this, she was an attorney. The, the woman could talk. She was an unbelievable speaker. The only words that she could get out of her mouth were that she had given up her right to a better past. And I just, I just started bawling, you know, you know, I had a feeling of happiness and gratitude for her that I had never in my life at that time, I was about 29 years old. I had never experienced before. So, you know, flash forward to 2004 when my mom passed away, when she passed away, I felt every bit of it. You know, there was no way to avoid it. I, I shouldn't say that. There were some ways that I avoided it that I'm not proud of. I didn't know that at the time. Um, at the time, I thought I was facing it. You know, my family was broken. My, my wife, at the time, her father died and her brother died within a year of this happening with my mom. It was a very painful and tragic time. And, and I knew that people around me were suffering more than I was. And, you know, I kept, I, I just stuck with the program and I walked through the program and, and kept sponsoring people and, 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 and kept up, kept my chin up and uh, kept working and just kept my feet moving, you know? And, um, and during that time, the feelings I had, I had never experienced, you know, you think about the grief and the, the shame and the disappointment and the the loss that goes along with what it takes for a guy like me to surrender to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and then have something like this happen. And for those of you who have had this experience, I don't have to explain to you what this is like because it is a dark place that I only got to experience when I was sober enough to experience it because I, I probably should have had that experience with my grandmother, right, back in 1991. I know the people around me were having that experience, but I wasn't. But in 2004, when my mom passed away, the, the pain of her, of losing her, and over, it wasn't the first 30 months, you know, it was six months. It was a year into it when, when the, the casserole started, stopped coming and, and life got back to normal. And I realized, and it, it hurt in the pit of my stomach like nothing else ever has, that I was never going to see her again. And though people have their different beliefs, and I respect those beliefs, I'll tell you at that time, none of those beliefs that I had learned in church and grown up with comforted me. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have, and I'm not you know, dismissing them as not real or valid. I'm just telling you that at that time, it did not comfort me, and I was sick and nauseous and in pain. And so I kept walking through it, you know, and I wasn't perfect. I made mistakes, mistakes that have you know, that ended up costing me uh, later in my life. Um, 
but I also was able to be the person, number one, for my mom. You know, I'll never forget this. I mean, who would? It was my 11th birthday in AA. My mom was about two weeks away from death. She was in hospice and she had not gotten out of bed in about a month. And I went over to her house to tell her I was going to birthday night. And she was uh, in one of those Mexican dresses she used to wear. And I was, you know, I hadn't seen her dressed. And, uh, and she couldn't talk. She had this thing called Broca's aphasia. The tumors interrupted her ability to communicate. And, um, and she said, I'm going. And she couldn't walk. So I, I carried her, you know. I picked her up and I put her in the car and I took her and she sat in the non-smoking room in the back room of it, of, at Trinity. And, um, and when I went up to get my chip, you know, I looked back and she's just waving at me. And, you know, I knew at that moment that AA had uh, given my, mo- my, my mom the son that she had always wanted to have, you know? And so intermixed with all the pain of losing her was not shame, not disappointment in myself for not being there for her. In fact, a tremendous amount of gratitude that I was able to be there for my mom in a way that I never would have been capable of without AA. And over time, you know, I'm crying now. It's a, it's a heavy story for me to tell. But the truth is, I think about my mom all the time today. And I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude that I had a mom like that, you know, and that I was able to be that son for her the last few years of her life. So thanks for sharing that, David. And as you are speaking about you and your relationship with your mom and what you have realized as the years have gone on, what keeps going through my head is and I don't know if you have an answer to this, but I'm going to ask you for your thoughts anyway, just because it's kind of popping up for me. How come you and me and others like us get this chance and this experience? And there are other people that are out there within a gunshot of here, and they're trying to stay sober, and they just can't get it, and they definitely don't have the they have not been grafted into something like Alcoholics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous itself. What are your thoughts on that? Well, anything I think about it, I have to preface with, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't understand it, you know. I, w- I would compare it to, you know, when I'm in meetings and, 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 and people talk about knowing that there's a God because they didn't die. Um, I've been sober long enough to think about all the people who did die. And, um, you know, the longer you stay sober, you see a lot of people die. And I've been sober long enough to, to have a recognition. And I don't know if it's, I, I kind of shudder to use the word wisdom because it sounds like prideful, but that's not what I mean by it. I've just had enough experience in AA watching people who really wanted this deal, who really tried, who worked the steps and gave it their best as far as I could tell. And, and really, in my view, as, as, as well as they could tell, they were doing it to the best of their ability. And I've seen those people die. And, and I just cannot believe that somehow God loved me more than he loved them. 
You know, I can't believe that a God exists because I lived and doesn't exist because they died. And it's particularly strong in me when I think about, you know, people being spared from death and cancer. You know, both of my parents died of cancer and, and uh, you know, they were beautiful people and they were children of God. So I don't know the answer to your question. I don't, I don't think anyone probably does. Um, but I do know I've had way more experience in this than I would like to have had. Um, you know, the Frisco group is an incredible group. Uh, those of you who ever visit Texas, please come to meetings with us because it's full of really powerful people who have had big experiences with the 12 steps and share about it at meetings. And yet all around us, um, we have had funeral after funeral and there was a time. So let's go back before. I remember when I was using and partying and we would see people like their parents drag them off and send them to treatment. And we would say stupid things like, you know, forward man, never straight, you know. And we, we would kind of think that they were the losers because they were having to quit, right? When I came to AA, I kind of had that view, you know, like you, you, you just weren't trying you know, I mean, literally the first three or four years I was sober, if you came into a meeting and you shared that you were getting divorced or, or you acted sad, it, what would go through my mind was, well, if you work this program like I did, you wouldn't feel that way, which is horrible. I mean, what a way to think. I didn't mean to be that way. Um, I was just very judgy. And one of the things that happens in staying sober a long time and making mistakes and having bad things and good things and ups and downs and failures that have nothing to do with me and failures that are completely my fault, one of the things that happens is a softening of that judgment. You know, um, I have, I guess you would call it empathy. Um, for those who make it, and I'm so happy for the people who make it, and I'm incredibly sad for the people who don't. And I don't think any one in any group of people in AA, whether you're sober 30 years or 30 days, or you can't stay sober 30 minutes, is any better or worse or loved less or more by God. You know, um, we just all have our path in life. And uh, my job is to add to the lives of the people around me as best I can. What about, you know how you hear nowadays are so, I don't, oh gosh, I don't even know how to describe it. There's like, there's this way to work the book and it's almost either insinuated <laughs> or um, just outright said, if you don't work it the way we work at the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to die, get drunk, and this is the way to we do it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I know it's not true because I know a lot of people who have been sober a long time and I, I think it's like a fingerprint. My Clovis used to say to me and he'd share it in meetings a lot and it was it's really the truth. He he would say, This is my thumbprint, you know, and if you stuck your thumb up and we looked at our thumbprints, there would be similarities to those thumbprints. But the fact is no one's thumbprint is exactly like my thumbprint. And it makes me unique and it makes me different. And there's nothing wrong with your thumb for not being like my thumb. Um, and that's the way I feel about the program. I mean, I think, uh, I think a monkey, well, Clovis used to say that to me, with the willingness I had to work this program at the time, I thought I was going to die of this disease because that's why I was so willing. Um, he, you know, a monkey with cue cards could have gotten me sober because um, I was willing to follow whatever instruction. And I don't know what comes first. 
you know, willingness or action. I mean, I, obviously willingness comes before action, but I don't know what comes first in being the reason that I'm sober today. Um, yes, Clovis took me through the book. We went page by page. But of course, I, I work steps with people all the time and they said, well, that's not how my sponsor did it. And I'm saying, well, that's fine. We're, that's how we're going to do it this time. And it doesn't mean that the way your sponsor did it was wrong or that the way I'm doing it is right. I can only show you the path that I walked. And the idea that I would think that the way you walked the path to long-term sobriety was wrong because it wasn't just the way I did it is, is a little, it's just a little absurd to me, you know? But at the same time, I totally get it because I have been the AA pounding my big book thumping evangelistic guy. I think everyone goes through that period in early sobriety to some extent. And you want to know why? Because this thing saved my life. On September 15th of 1993, I was absolutely convinced that AA was not going to work for me, that I had done it. I had had sponsors. I had gone through the book. I had done 90 and 90 and 90 and 90, and that I was hopeless. And my sponsor showed me a way to work the books, a simple way, going page by page to the book. And since that day, the compulsion and craving to use drugs and alcohol has never returned. Doesn't mean I don't think about it. Doesn't mean. If you don't think about it, well, I don't get that because, I mean, just go skiing and smell the weed they're smoking on the chairlifts. And if that doesn't make you wonder what that's like, I don't get you. Um, but the compulsion and obsession has been gone. And just that miracle, you know, those step 10 promises that we've been placed in a position of neutrality. If that is all that I got from that, this program, that would be a miracle beyond anything I thought was possible. I mean, that there's so much more, the relationships, the opportunity to care for other people, to have people care for me. I mean, when my mom died and my dad died, you know, my dad died a few years later. Um, and when they passed away, I was completely surrounded by people in AA you know, in a way that I had never been there for other people. And so I go to people's parents' funerals, you know, because I know how important it is to them and how much it meant to me when people came to mine. And I don't know where the heck I got off on that thing. I'm talking a little bit too much about death, but I, I just want to say that, you know, that there's a right way and a wrong way. I tell you what, the right way is the way that I stay sober. David G. Thank you again so much for bearing your soul with the Sober Speak Live audience and all of the insight that you provide. That was excellent. Just excellent. And all of you all listening, keep in mind out there that we are going to have the second part of the Sober Speak Live event with David G next week. And it's and and it's a uh, it's a Q and A session, and basically we open it up and let the people that were there attending ask some questions, and David was able to answer all those questions, and you don't want to miss that. As usual, we don't want you sharing gossip or your STD, but we do want you sharing this episode <laughs> with a friend or a family member, and maybe just what they need today. So pause your device, click the little share button and get it on over to them. All right. Oh, and also if you want to be part of the uh, super secret Facebook group, send me your email to John J O H N at soberspeak.com and we'll get you out an invite. And keep in mind, it has to be the email that is associated with Ewan's Facebook account. 
All right, now on to a little bit of a listener feedback for you. Listener Dela feedback. Fiona writes in on the Instagram and she says, uh, Hi, John. My name is Fiona and I am from Sterling in Scotland. I've been doing a fair bit of driving over the past weeks. last few weeks to see my daughter. I'm an alcoholic and I've been loving your podcast on my drives. Could I please be added to your secret Facebook group? My email is such and such, such and such. Well, Fiona, but Fiona is, she's a Scot. What area are you from there, Miss Fiona? And I guess that area would be Sterling. I know a wee bit of the Scottish accent, but not much. Do you fancy what I'm saying? I know a little bit of the lingo, but not much. Okay, I just have to tell you this. I am Scottish. So half Scottish. My mother was from Scotland. And one time when I was a child, my grandmother came over to visit from Scotland. And um, I uh, asked her one day, my my friends had heard my mom and her talking and knew that she, well, she was not from uh, Alabama. I'll put it that way. And so she was uh, talking and my friends asked me, they said, now, are you Scottish or Irish? So I, being the youngster that I was, didn't know the difference. I went home and I said, Grandma, can you tell me, are we Scottish or Irish? She said, oh, man, I'll never forget that reaction. And I never asked that again. You don't ask somebody from Scotland if they're if they are Irish. Uh, it did not go over well at all. But anyway, Fiona from Stirling, Scotland, the area you're from. Thank you for writing in. Russell writes in and he says, John, been listening for a few days, been in and out of the rooms for a while, currently struggling due to this pandemic and ready to get sober again. I just want you to know that I appreciate what you do listening right now, and it is definitely helping. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you sincerely, Russell L. Well, thank you, Russell. I appreciate you writing in, and I'm glad we can be part of your journey. Catherine writes in, and she says, well, the title of the, or the subject line on the email was Rule 62, You Make My Day, exclamation point, smiley face. And just in case you are out there and you don't know what Rule 62 is, just look it up, Google it. Uh, uh, Rule 62 uh, and Alcoholics Anonymous, it'll point you to a portion of the 12 and 12 where it talks about Rule 62. Anyway, Catherine says, Dear John, I've emailed you before to say thank you for hosting Sober Speak, but I just wanted to get back in touch and say that I love, in big capital letters, your podcast and listening to you brightens my day. You choose amazing shares and all of you help to keep me sober just one day at a time. However, my reason for emailing you today is to tell you that my daughters hear me laughing out loud with such joy at your little anecdotes (laughs) and singing and singing joke and singing and jokes. Well, I guess that's good. I'm glad, Catherine. She says, sometimes I listen to the podcast twice for maximum laughter. 
She says, we alcoholics can't do anything once, right? Question mark. At dinner, they say to me, OMG, you laugh so much today, four exclamation points. I listen to you in my AirPods so they can't hear what I'm laughing at. (laughs) Isn't that great? My sponsor always says, don't forget rule 62 and don't take yourself so damn seriously. You have been my meeting between Zoom meetings and during lockdown, and I have suggested to my sponsees that they have a listen to your podcast when the cloudy days are upon us. Thank you. Bless you. And please don't stop giving great service to us fellows with your lovely humor and brilliant share, Catherine S. In the United Kingdom. Catherine, thank you so much. I'm so glad you referenced Rule 62. And hopefully we will have folks that go and look that up and uh, if they don't know what it is. But thank you so much. God bless you. Dean writes in, he says, Hi, John, I found your podcast. And I am enjoying them. My sobriety date is October 8th of 2019. And I would like to be in the private Facebook page. As you know, Dean, we got you out an invite. I'm in Pittsburgh. I am in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. I drive the, if you've never been to Pittsburgh, they have about a billion bridges. And in fact, I think there's some, there's some line about the city being the city of bridges or something like that. Anyway, I love Pittsburgh. Anyway, he says, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I drive a lot for work and I need a change from listening to music and entertainment podcasts on Spotify. I was searching for an AA podcast and yours was the first one that showed up. Well, that is fantastic. That's a hopefully that's a godsend for you, Mr. Dean. I found it today and listened to two episodes. Jimmy D was great. I look forward to making it a regular go-to between meetings. Dean E. Well, thank you, Dean. And tell everybody up there in the Pittsburgh area, we said hello. Brian T writes in and Brian says, Hi, John M. I live just south of Hernando, Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. He didn't spell it. I I do. I just, I don't know. I can't help myself. Nonetheless, he says, I'm approximately 30 miles south of Memphis, Tennessee. Well, you are very close to my father, Mr. Brian T. Nonetheless, he says, I have been in SLAA. And for those of you who don't know what SLAA is, that is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Anyway, he says, I've been in SLAA for approximately 10 years and sober for eight or so. I have been... I have CPTSD. Now, I know what PTSD is. I'm assuming the C on it uh, uh, kind of differentiates it somehow. I don't know for sure. But nonetheless, I have CPTSD, and, and that has damaged my memory. So dates get a little fuzzy. While my poison of choice, po- poison of choice, that's that's kind of tougher. My poison of choice. That sounds like a. It's like one of those uh, cartoon characters. I can't remember who I'm. Uh, uh, who's coming up in my head right now? But my poison of choice is an alcohol. I could be alcoholic if I chose the drink. I try and stay in the solution. I love reading or hearing about the twelve steps, twelve and twelve, or early AA stories. I have read the Big Book. My favorite podcast with you, John, was with Spencer on the Recovery Show. 
show. I am all, I'm also a fan of Spencer's work. Love it when Spencer's on. I'm going to get him back on for some more. Uh, just got to get it scheduled. Nonetheless, he says, I have decided a few weeks ago that I would listen to all of your podcast topics and started at number one. I'm currently a couple of minutes into number 30 with your wife. I laughed hearing her say she may qualify for more A's. Laugh out loud. You have a great podcast and I've mentioned it to my fellows. Thank thank you for y'all's service to the recovery community. I will be sending a donation. Oh, well, thank you, Brian. You don't have to do that, but thank you very much. Um, Brian T. Jurg. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Jurg, uh, J-U-E-R-G, writes in. He says, hi, John. Thanks for your podcast. I am writing from Switzerland in AA. I've been in AA for four and a half years. Very grateful for the fellowship and the program and a podcast like yours. I really enjoyed, I enjoyed several episodes already, and I like the interview style of your podcast. I enjoyed very much the last episode. Will you please give Rick, uh, or, oh, excuse me, please give my thanks to Rick. Do you happen to have any other episodes with a gay speaker? I am gay too, and I would love to hear more from Rick. Maybe you could deepen that topic with him. He said, quote, we don't have enough time, unquote. So maybe you could give him some more time, question mark. A big hug from Zurich. A good 24 hours to you. And thanks again, Jurg from Switzerland. Well, thank you, Zurg from Switzerland. And uh, I got your message out to Rick, Rick, as you know, and hopefully you guys can get together and have a conversation. I don't have... Uh, it's not like I look at my calendar and go, hmm, what am I going to have a gay speaker in here? Um, I don't have anything scheduled, uh, but that doesn't mean uh, something is not coming up. I Usually what happens is I just, I schedule people in. And like, for example, with Rick, I didn't know he was gay. And we came in here, we started talking and all of a sudden, hey, you know, we got a gay uh, episode out. So not a gay episode, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, an episode with a gay man on it. So uh, I will... Uh, do my best maybe to schedule somebody this gay, but I don't have anything on the docket right now. I, I'm just like, I, I, I feel like I'm about to stick my foot in my mouth, so I'm just going to go on from here. <laughs> but thank you, Jerg, for writing in. Ray writes in from New Jersey. Hey, how you doing, Ray? I celebrated 16 years this month, and your podcasts are always great to hear. Well, good for you, Ray from New Jersey. I'm glad you're doing so well, Mr. Ray from New Jersey. And congratulations on your 16 months. You know what I'm saying, right, Ray? Now, you know, I can, I'm picturing people here that are listening to the podcast. You know, we have over 100 countries that listen to this podcast. Last time I counted, I think it was like 110, and that was, I don't know, I, that was like six months ago, maybe a year ago. It could be more than that. But nonetheless, we have a lot of people from around the world that are listening to the podcast, right? And I always wonder to myself, when I am talking about, talking to somebody that wrote in from someplace like New Jersey, and they hear that, and they go, what in the hell is he doing? What's all that 
How you doing, right? What's all that about? And uh, I guess he would, you know, they, they, I'm assuming they just roll their eyes and go, maybe I'll go on to another podcast. I have no idea. Anyway, Judith writes in and Judith says, Hey, Judith, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Hey, Judith. Now, she didn't write that in. That was from yours truly that just wanted to do a, in honor of Judith writing in, perform a song. And that was really bad. Anyway, Judith says, hi, sheepish stranger is what she says. He says, isn't like sheepish mean something like, you know, you'll do something without really thinking about it. Uh, I, I'm not completely sure. But anyway, she says, hi, sheepish stranger. Can't say that 10 times fast. Uh, I have listened to the, I haven't listened to the podcast in months. Well, come on back into the fold, Judith. I now have a new phone. I don't know. Maybe she's saying that she couldn't listen to the podcast because she needed a new phone. Anyway, she says, and I have been struggling. No, not not with drinking, but I have often thought of you and sober speak. My hours of work have been cut, my request. All I have been doing since March is work and sleep. I now have seen the sun. <laughs> It's real. Yep, it's real. She says, can I join the Facebook group again? I will listen to the podcast. You just being there makes me know I am not alone. Oh, that's so nice, Judith. I appreciate that. And back at you. You know, we're all in this together, Miss Judith. Judith, she says, you're awesome. I am thick and wooly, not you. Now, you are stretching my vocabulary here. Thick and wooly. Oh gosh, I'm not really sure. I've heard the term before, but gosh, I just can't think of what it means off and right off the top of my head. Nonetheless, she says she, that's from Judith. So Judith, thanks for writing in again. I really appreciate it. Laura writes in and she says, hi, John. I am from up oh, here she, here's another person from New Jersey. She says, this is my fourth year in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm just getting my one-year coin, uh, or just got my one-year coin on April 13th, 2020. Yeah, I got my one-year coin on April 13th, 2020. A friend of mine does not drive, so she's been talking about Sober Speak for a while. I started doing Zoom and listening to more podcasts during the quarantine while I slowed my life down. I usually look for a step that I'm working on and listen to them. I liked Katie P talking about step six and seven. I don't think I've ever had a KDP on the podcast, but it could be my memory lacking. Nonetheless, whatever you're listening to, I'm glad you're enjoying it, uh, Laura. And she says, and I just listened to the three speakers on step eight. Thank you for adding me to the Facebook group, Laura. Well, Laura from New Jersey, I'm so glad we can be part of your journey. And finally, last but not least, Andrew writes in on the Instagram, and he is from New Zealand. He's a Kiwi, and he says, thank you, John. 
I've been listening to your podcast a lot. I love it. Some incredible speakers. My sobriety date is the 30th of April, 2018. I laughed at you attempting to say, na mihi nui in your listener feedback to a fellow listener from New Zealand. So thank you for your podcast again. Na mihi nui, Andrew. I am probably bastardizing that particular word. My apologies. I love all you folks out in New Zealand who are listening to the podcast. Please don't take it personally. All right, everybody. That's another wrap. We will take this one week at a time. I always say I may make it back next week. I may not. Uh, and but, but I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening in. God bless you. Take care. Keep coming back. It works if you work it.